Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. To God's Word this morning, turn to the Old Testament. In fact, this fall, throughout the fall, we'll be turning to the Old Testament and looking at some books of the Bible that maybe we don't turn to very often. For those of you students who do sword drills in Sunday school and race to see who can find a passage in the Bible quickest to learn your way around the Bible, this fall you'll get some practice with the challenge passages. We're going to look this fall at three short prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three books of the Old Testament. And Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi belong together. These three prophets are called the post-exilic prophets because all three were written to God's people, or all three prophets came to God's people after they had returned from exile in Babylon and were back in Jerusalem. All three speak to God's people on a time when God's faithfulness had been on display, but not the way the people expected. And this led to discouragement, it led to spiritual apathy, and it led to falling into patterns of sin. These, spe- these books speak to a specific situation in Israel's history, but, but God speaks truth in these letters, these books that are of particular application for us today. And so we begin this morning with the book of Haggai. If you're going to turn to the book of Haggai, you'll find it in between the two Z's, in between Zephaniah and Zechariah the third to the last book in the Old Testament. I was a a freshman in college. I arrived on on campus in my first week and decided to attend a a Bible study. It was led by a senior that year. He is now a a professor at the King's College in New York City. He was a friend and, and mentor of mine, and he led the Bible study on this book of Haggai. And I'm sure I'd probably read the book of Haggai before it at some point, but I'd certainly never understood it, and I don't think I'd ever heard it preached on, and it was that Bible study that first gave me a love for this book. But if we're going to jump to the letter of Haggai and read what Haggai has to say, we need at least a little bit of background of what's happening with God's people when Haggai shows up on the scene. So let's do the quick cliff notes review, if you will, of where God's people have been. You'll remember that God's people of Israel were divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, Israel, was largely disobedient to God, and they were captured and led into exile by Assyria about 200 years prior to Haggai coming onto the scene. The southern kingdom of Judah was more obedient, but they also turned to idolatry and were captured and taken into exile by Babylon. That was about 70 years before Haggai shows up. But you'll remember, perhaps, that Jeremiah had prophesied when his people were taken captive that 70 years would pass and that God would restore his people to the land. And if you review history, you'll note and have a comforting reminder that God is perfectly sovereign and that God uses the details of every political development in nation to work out his perfect purposes. 
because God was the one who raised up Babylon and Assyria and their policies as empires was to take people and take them out of their land and exile them to a different part of the empire. Perfect for God's plan to bring his judgment on his people and to bring exile. But God then enabled the Persians to gain control. And the Persians were led by a man named Cyrus. And he established a new empire-wide policy in order to secure the goodwill of the people in the empire. And the policy was this. He was going to restore every person who wanted to their homeland, and he was going to invest money in rebuilding the temples of each local god. Now, that's a pretty good policy to get people on your side, but it's also the perfect political development for God to fulfill his promises and restore his people to the land and restore the temple. And we learn in the book of Ezra that many from Judah and Benjamin, priests and Levites, returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, and they built an altar and laid the foundation for the temple of the Lord. There was initial fervor and excitement. There was praise and singing and thanksgiving to the Lord. But then some trouble hit because there were some locals who were not so happy to see the Israelites back in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple and they wrote a scathing letter of accusation to a new emperor who had just come on the throne and this new emperor commanded that the work of the temple be stopped. And in discouragement, the people of Israel ceased their work. Now certainly there were options to appeal. There were ways God's people could have pursued obedience, but they didn't. See, it seems that they thought God was bringing all of his promises to pass and and they hadn't expected opposition and difficulty. Even though if we review the history of God's people, what we'll see is that God always brings some opposition or difficulty as a test for his people and in order to make them rely on him and his strength and in order to display his power and glory. But the people of Israel at this time concluded if this kind of opposition had come, well, God must not be in this after all. It must not be time to rebuild God's temple. And so they turned to focus on rebuilding their own lives in Jerusalem. Fifteen years passed. Fifteen years Disappointment and unfulfilled expectations led to a reigning spiritual apathy in Israel. A focus on their own personal lives set in while the temple remained untouched. But God's people had misread things. And God, in his mercy, sent two prophets, both Haggai and Zechariah, at the same time to prophesy and call the Israelites to repentance and action and hope. And it's these prophets that we're going to study in the weeks to come. And so here we are at Haggai chapter 1. I hope you turn there and read with me. In this 15 years of apathy and discouragement, with no work having been done on the temple, Haggai shows up on the scene with a word from the Lord. I hope you read with me Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Well, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses 
while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. God, this is your word that you sent by Haggai the prophet, and it's your word that you speak to us this morning. We pray that you would confront our hearts and bring glory to your name. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. With medical technology where it is today, if a doctor wants to look inside of us and see our insides, they've got plenty of ways to do it. They could choose an MRI, or maybe they would choose a CAT scan. Maybe they would choose an ultrasound, or perhaps an x-ray, depending on what it is that they want to see. But for all the medical technology that we have, physicians can still just look in and see our bones and our muscles. So far, no technology has been able to look inside of us and see our desires, our thoughts, our emotions, our intentions. And since this is the body of literature that I'm very familiar with in my stage of life, I will note that this was good news for Franklin the Turtle. See, and Franklin goes to the hospital, Franklin has to admit to the doctor that he doesn't want an x-ray because he's worried that it will show that he's afraid of his coming surgery. And the doctor has to assure Franklin that an x-ray will show his bones, but it will not show anybody that he's afraid. But what if an x-ray-like process could show people what was in our hearts? What if a technology could look inside of us and see our desires and our loves and our fears and our intentions? David Pallison is a Christian counselor who has tried to come up with a list of questions that might help reveal our hearts and our desires with a list of some 55 questions that he calls x-ray questions because they will highlight what is going on in our hearts. They're questions like this. 
What consumes the largest portion of your free time in life? What things do you make sure you have time for each day? And what things do you let slip through the cracks? Or what gives you the greatest sense of calm and security in life? What things make you most anxious or worried in life? You see how these questions begin to dig at our hearts and see what we consider important, what we love, and what we fear? Well, answers to these questions will show us what we value, and hopefully we will hold our lives up to God's word. But in Haggai chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes through Haggai to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the people with one piercing x-ray question to reveal what is in their hearts. And the question is this, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? And this question reveals Haggai's main point this morning. Haggai's main point is this, the reason God's people are not building the temple is because their priorities are wrong. And God is calling them to repent and to put him first and to build. As we work through this chapter, I want us to see three things. I want us to see Haggai's question, Haggai's call, and the people's response. Haggai's question, Haggai's call, and the people's response. Let's look through each of these. We begin in verses 2 and 3 with Haggai's question. But you'll notice that before asking a question, Haggai summarizes the people's current position. See it in verse 2 there. Thus says the Lord, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. But this position is a striking position because God's word had been perfectly clear that this was the time to rebuild the temple. Jeremiah had told the people that God would regather them to the land when 70 years were up. And even more specifically, in Isaiah 44, Isaiah had prophesied, and note that this was 150 years before this happened, Isaiah had prophesied that a man named Cyrus would come on the scene, and that God would use Cyrus to accomplish his purposes, which were to bring the people back to Jerusalem and rebuild his temple. Ezra chapter 1 tells us that the people did interpret God's word in this way. They did see Cyrus's decree allowing them back to their land and granting them help to rebuild the temple as God's fulfillment of these promises. At least they saw it as God's fulfillment until the adversaries opposed them, until the going got difficult, when they decided, actually, it must not be God's will that this is the time to rebuild the temple. And isn't this, isn't this a warning for all of us? Is it so easy for us to twist God's word when our circumstances or desires don't seem to line up with what we were expecting? And we twist God's word to fit our expectations or, or the way we want things to work out or they appear to be working out rather than acting and shifting our expectations according to God's word, which is truth. But for God's people, it went deeper than this because not only had God told them through his prophets that this was the time to rebuild the temple, the temple was crucial for Israel's relationship with God at this point in history. God had told Solomon that the temple was a sign of his presence with his people. The temple was the covenantal place where God would meet with his people. 
And further, the temple was the only place where sacrifices could be made before the Lord. And the sacrifices that God had commanded were the one way, the necessary way, to bring sinful people back into fellowship with a holy God. And not only were God's presence tied to the temple, not only were sacrifices, blood sacrifices tied to the temple, but the temple was also important for Israel as they looked to God's promise of future redemption. In the 500 years between Haggai and the coming of Christ, the temple and its sacrifices would continue to be the physical picture of God's gracious presence with his people and his provision for forgiveness of sins through the shedding of blood that would point forward to and remind his people of the promise of a Messiah to come who would fully accomplish redemption. All of this is wrapped up in the temple. And so for the people to say the time has not come for the temple to be rebuilt was not only ignoring specific prophecies that God had made, it was also essentially saying things like, the time has not come for us to enjoy the fellowship with God's presence in our midst. The time has not come for us to focus on God's promises of future glory and redemption that are pictured for us in the temple. It was a sign that the priorities of God's people were out of place. And so Haggai drives to the heart of this issue with one piercing question. You say it isn't time to rebuild the house of the Lord. Well then, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? And this x-ray question reveals the key issue. The temple was not relying in ruins because of opposition. The temple was not lying in ruins because it wasn't time for rebuilding. The temple was lying in ruins because the people had made their own houses a higher priority in their hearts and lives than God's house. The question that Haggai asked talks about paneled houses, dwelling in paneled houses, and this word is important. And it could go in one of two directions, both of which make the same point. But paneled houses first refer to some level of unnecessary luxury. It's not that the people just paused from the temple for a little while to make sure they had a house to live in. No, it's that 15 years of not working on the temple later, they have put time and effort into upgrades and comfort for themselves while the temple lies in ruins. But the word also likely goes deeper because nearly every other time in the Old Testament where the word paneled is used, it's used to refer to the cedar planks that Solomon used to build the Lord's temple. Four out of its other five times it refers to Solomon's temple. And Ezra 1 tells us that Cyrus had ordered a government grant to cover the expense of bringing in cedar wood for the building of the new temple. And yet Haggai 1 says that in order to build the temple now, the people are going to have to go up to the hills and bring wood. What happened to all of the cedar wood that Cyrus had ordered when the temple building had stopped. Is it possible that this very cedar wood panels are are adorning their own houses instead of the temple that never got built? Either way, whether it's referring to unnecessary luxury or the very materials that should have been used for the temple, the point is that the time and resources that should have gone into God's house have now been used for their own houses instead. Haggai's point is clear. 
The people have enthusiastically put effort into their own comfort, their own physical well-being, but they've shown little priority or enthusiasm for their spiritual life and for fellowship with God. A presumption that they've done what they could has masked a growing spiritual apathy in the people's hearts. This is the question that Haggai asks. But having exposed this core issue, Haggai follows up his question with a call in verses 7 to 9. The call is consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house. This phrase, consider your ways, which Haggai uses twice. Ways is a broad word that refers to your habits of life, the way you're going about your life. It's a word that can can cover the full range of thoughts, desires, intentions, and actions. And so Haggai says, consider your life, consider your ways, and consider them while holding them up to God's word. But notice how God zeroes in on the key issue here in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, God says to go and build his house, bring wood, build the house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. See, building the temple was not only about God's presence and God's promises. It was also Israel's specific opportunity to glorify the Lord and please him. What could be better for us than living in a way that envelops us in the pleasure and glory of God? For Israel at this time, those things weren't as important as their own home renovation projects. And I think for all of us, we know that eventually, if God's glory and God's pleasure are not first in our hearts, it will be evident at some point soon in the actions of our lives. Now, of course, if the Israelites in 520 BC were anything like you and I, You can imagine maybe a dialogue or or pushback that they might get when they first heard this message. You could imagine them saying things like, well, Haggai, God's word doesn't prohibit paneled houses. We haven't done anything contrary to God's law here, and, and we tried building the temple 15 years ago, remember? And it didn't go so well. There was nothing we could do. Haggai, aren't you overreacting a bit? And so Haggai drives his point home by looking around them and inviting the Israelites to look around them. What was the situation? They sowed much, but harvested little. They eat, but aren't satisfied. They have earned money, but when they earn it, it feels like they put it into bags with holes in it. Maybe some of you can sympathize with that feeling. You earn a paycheck and then you look at your bank account and it feels like you've put it into an account with holes in it. But the Israelites, yes, they may have some decent paneled houses, but they are unsatisfied. Their circumstances are not going well. And in verse 9, God sums up the problem. He says, you looked for much. You had great expectations coming back to the promised land. And behold, it came to little. Why? I did this because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. What a great phrase for us to ponder. Each of you busies himself with his own house while my house lies in ruins. Here we are at this point in history where God has graciously covenanted with his people and come and dwelt with them and given them the tabernacle and then the temple 
as a visible sign and a place of his presence dwelling with them, as a sign of his covenantal presence. And while they went into exile because of their sins, God has now graciously brought them back and called them to rebuild the temple again as a sign of his presence and a picture of the redemption in the Messiah that he's going to call them to. And yet, Israel is busying themselves with their own house. Haggai really draws the full picture into focus in verses 10 and 11. See, in verses 10 and 11, he talks about famine and drought and failed crops. And if you read those verses, and if you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 28, what you will begin to see is that these are the sentences, these are the curses, the first initial curses that God had warned Israel would come upon them if they did not obey his covenant. And so you can hear Haggai telling Israel, you may be back in the promised land, but if you don't care about God's glory and God's covenant and God's presence, and if you do not obey God's word, you might as well still be in Babylon because the covenant curses are upon you. And so yes, Israel, wrong priorities that lead to carelessness about God's glory and carelessness about God's law is a very big deal. And I wonder if we could pause and say that just like for Israel, wrong priorities and a carelessness about God's law and God's glory are a big deal for you and I as well. And I'm hard-pressed for us to think of a question that could be more important for you and I to ask ourselves than this one. What do our routines What do our bank accounts, what do our thoughts and actions show about our priorities? Of course, Haggai didn't just ask this question in general. He asked a piercing and specific question. Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while my house dwells in ruins? And I don't have the spiritual insight to look at each one of us this morning and ask the specific question. But I can ask some typical types of x-ray questions. And I wonder if Haggai might ask some of us, is it time for you to be watching Netflix and sports when you are not spending time in my word and in prayer? Is it time for you to play soccer on Sunday morning when your seat in my house is empty? Is it time for you to take a vacation when you have not given tithes to my church and to my kingdom and its work? Is it time for you to do hobbies and play golf and hang out with friends when you haven't taken time to serve and minister to my people or show hospitality to those who need it? We could go on and on with the questions that Haggai might ask us. But I think the importance for us is to remember that you and I don't have a specific call to rebuild a physical temple, but Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that now the temple of God is building is his church, that his people is where his presence dwells, so that the question for us, the application for us, is whether we are giving our time and our money and our effort into growing, into building, into ministering to the body of Christ, because we desire the pleasure of God and the glory of God. And certainly, many of you do this. I could tell you this morning stories of members of our church who have served at the safety desk 45 Sundays in a year. I could tell you stories of men and women who have served in the nursery or at the soundboard for all three services in a Sunday. I could tell you of those whose 
teaching in Sunday school is measured by decades rather than in years. But while many of, there are many examples of this type of faithfulness, there is room for every one of us to examine our hearts and ask where our priorities lie. One commentator, Michael Barrett, highlights, I think, the importance for each one of us to ask this question when he puts it this way. Putting God first is an expression of the greatest commandment to love Him with our whole heart, soul, and strength. And it is the sobering conclusion that if loving God totally is the greatest commandment, then not making Him the first priority is the greatest sin. And so, may each one of us consider this morning what it would look like for us to put the priority and the enthusiasm and the time and desire and effort into our spiritual growth and into the growth into the glory of God and His kingdom, to pleasing Him and giving Him honor. May we look and ask what it would look like to put that enthusiasm and time and effort that we put into our own physical comfort and well-being. Well, Haggai has asked a piercing question and he has issued his call, but I want us to end by looking at the people's response in verses 12 through 15. And we can summarize the people's response by saying the people repented and built. And it's so often the case that God's prophets were ignored or maybe laughed at, and if not ignored and laughed at, imprisoned or flogged or killed, that the immediacy of Israel's obedience can almost catch us off guard. But if you follow these verses, you'll see a three-step process to their repentance. God's Word says that they obeyed or listened to the Word of the Lord. Then it says that the people feared the Lord. And then it says that they acted. They went and built. And this three-step process is the pattern for all true and godly repentance. We hear the Word of the Lord and we listen to it or obey it. We fear the Lord And fearing the Lord talks about recognizing who He is in His reality, that He is the authority that determines whether we are right or wrong. He is the majestic one who has the right and the power to reward those who seek Him and punish those who reject Him. And when we recognize and believe that God is who He says He is, that response, that belief, is a fear of the Lord. And when we obey the word of the Lord, when we listen to the Lord's word, and when we fear the Lord, that leads us to act. And I think this is such an important reminder for us this morning, because many of us may walk out of the sanctuary on Sunday mornings with a great feeling of conviction. In fact, I think it's almost part of the way the church operates, that we feel very spiritual when we have a heart feeling of conviction. But true repentance is not found in the catharsis of a feeling of conviction, but in a changed life that leaves and acts differently. And so the question for us is, will we hear God's word? Will we fear the Lord? And will that lead to a difference in the way we act and live? My prayer is that each one of us will honestly consider our ways, will open our hearts to the x-ray of God's spirit and God's word, and then reorder our priorities for the glory and pleasure of God in ways that lead to real difference in our lives. But before we end, 
We can't leave this passage as one merely of call to conviction and repentance. I don't want us to miss the grace and the encouragement of Haggai's message to the people. Yes, God has brought misery on the people of Israel for their spiritual apathy and disobedience. But this is a God who stands faithful to his covenant. This is a God of steadfast love who stands ready to forgive and to enable his people in their obedience if they repent. And to understand this, we have to recognize the challenges that faced the people of Israel. If they're going to repent and build a temple, there are many obstacles in their way. They're struggling in a time of drought, and yet they have a harvest to bring in, given the time of year that this message came in. They owe taxes to an emperor. They're not sure how a new emperor is going to respond. They have adversaries around them. They don't just walk out and casually start building a temple. This is a costly call to obedience. But when Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people obey the voice of the Lord, do you see what Haggai says in verses 13 and 14? Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And then it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. I don't want you to miss, by the way, the change in language. In Haggai 1 verse 2, God said, these people say it is not time to build the house. Now, in verses 13 and 14, after the repentance, it is the remnant of the people of God. And the word of the Lord comes from the Lord of hosts, their God. Do you see God drawing near to his people? And this is always the promise that carries us through, isn't it? The promise that when God calls us to difficult obedience, he promises to be with us in it and to stir up our spirit to do it and to pave the way and the path that he calls us to go. See, Haggai's goal is not just to stir up guilt here. His goal was to call Israel to repentance, but then to action and faith and obedience. And when God's people do repent and obey, God does not leave them to accomplish his will in their own strength, but God draws near to them. He promises their presence saying, I am with you. And he gives his own spirit to stir up their spirits. Because remember, the role of a prophet. God's prophets, yes, they call out sin and call people to repent. But God's prophets also came to bring confidence in God and to stir up desire for his will and expectant hope in his promises. And they particularly came to stir up this hope through the coming Messiah so that God is the one who would consume his people and his presence and his promises would be their strength and their satisfaction, and their salvation. And that's what God's prophets do for his people today as well. Because God's words here in Haggai are only sharpened, aren't they? By the arrival of Jesus Christ, by his death on our behalf, and his resurrection, and his pouring out of his spirit on us. So that now all who call on him, all who confess and repent, and call on the name of Jesus in faith and obedience, hear these promises. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. He promises, I will be with you always. 
And His Spirit draws near to strengthen us and sanctify us and stir up spiritual fruit in us and all the more as that day draws near. Because for you and I, drawing near to God and rearranging our hearts and our lives so that His kingdom and His glory and His pleasure is our priority, not our comfort and physical success. When we do this, these are our acts of faith in His promises. That at times may be costly, yes, but we do them because God's Word calls us to, and we do them knowing that God has fully and finally guaranteed his presence with us to strengthen us and enable us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to our God for his promises in Christ. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for Haggai, who calls and asks pointed and piercing questions of God's people, highlighting their spiritual apathy and their misplaced priorities. I pray that your word would pierce our hearts this morning as well. But how we thank you that your word brought obedience from your people and at their repentance you drew near to them and said, I am with you. I am your God. I will stir up your spirit. And how we thank you that in Jesus Christ you have poured out your spirit, that your presence would be with us, that you would stir up our spirits to strengthen us and enable us for your glory. Oh, Father, may your pleasure and your glory be our joy this week. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.